The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents. If Amazon's employees in 2018 had owned as much of their employer's stock as Sears department store workers did in the 1950s, each Amazon worker would have owned shares worth roughly $400,000. What if the 100 largest companies in America instituted profit-sharing or worker ownership plans? This country would have a much larger middle class. Happy Thursday, everyone. This is the Next Big Idea Daily. I'm Michael Kovnett, and I'm back with some new ideas for you. Today, let's do a quick check-in on the U.S. economy. How do you think it's going? Some experts see it as good, some as shaky. But perhaps a more important question is, is the economy fair? Ensuring equal opportunity to everyone may seem utopian, but there are things we can do to get there, according to Nick Romeo, author of The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. Nick is a journalist on policy and ideas for The New Yorker and teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California. He's also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, National Geographic, Rolling Stone, and many other publications. Here he is with some of his big ideas. My name is Nick Romeo. I've spent the last several years covering the most compelling economic policies and ideas in Europe and America for The New Yorker magazine. These ideas explore a wide range of topics, from labor markets, to investment, to the pricing of goods, to so-called economic externalities. But they all reflect a deeper recognition that the economy is a sphere of political and moral action. It's not an abstract realm governed by scientific forces and ironclad laws. It reflects our own values. It's not always easy to improve the economy, but as my book shows, people around the world are already doing so in creative and effective ways. Externalities enable dangerous magical thinking. If you buy a cheap chocolate bar or hamburger, you might look at the price and feel like you're getting a good deal. But what if your chocolate is made from cocoa grown by forced child workers in North Africa, Or your hamburger comes from a cow raised and fed by destroying biodiversity in the Amazon. What economists call the externalities of these goods, costs not included in the price, cause great human suffering and drive environmental collapse. The cheap price for the consumer is an illusion. Ignoring externalities does not make them disappear. It just makes someone else pay them. Now, imagine a world in which the most relevant externalities for any good were immediately visible. Most people don't want to buy goods and services that are destroying the natural world and harming other humans. Yet nearly all of us, especially in wealthy countries, do this every day. If we knew the true externalities of what we consume, we would likely make different choices, ones that would motivate businesses to decrease these externalities and compel policymakers to do the same. True cost accounting methods and the true price movement, popular in the Netherlands, are supplying this crucial information to consumers and policymakers alike. Worker ownership can build a strong middle class. In America, probably the most popular form of worker ownership is called the ESOP, or Employee Stock Ownership Plan. 
If you work for a company with an ESOP, you accumulate ownership shares over time and redeem these upon retiring or leaving the company. Paying workers higher wages is great, but low-wage workers are unlikely to accumulate real wealth through wage increases alone. ESOPs are different. A recent study found that median retirement savings for low- to moderate-income workers at ESOPs in 16 states were $215,000. Median retirement savings for the average worker nationally were just $17,000. Profit-sharing and employee ownership plans help build these large chunks of capital, catapulting working people into the middle class. Profit-sharing plans can also exist at publicly traded companies. If Amazon's employees in 2018 had owned as much of their employer's stock as Sears department store workers did in the 1950s, each Amazon worker would have owned shares worth roughly $400,000. What if the 100 largest companies in America instituted profit-sharing or worker ownership plans? This country would have a much larger middle class. We can make gig work less exploitative. To reform the gig economy, we must find a strategy that can retain its positive aspects while eliminating the negative one. One clear positive is that people like and often need jobs with flexible hours. If current trends continue, 86 million Americans will be working freelance by 2027. That's more than 50% of the workforce. But the negatives of gig work are considerable. People don't like low wages, no sick leave or other benefits, having an algorithm as a boss, constantly changing hours and rules, and few prospects for advancement. One compelling alternative is to create markets for flexible work that operate as public utilities. Just as public utilities already supply water, electricity, and road networks in many areas, they could also provide the digital infrastructure for flexible labor markets. Instead of relying entirely for work on a private platform owned by a single company, job seekers could see many different jobs offered by many employers on one platform. Private gig work companies often take a huge transaction fee, 30% or more. A public option could charge a much smaller fee, between 2 and 5%. This would make such a platform cheaper for consumers and would drive better wages for workers. Enforcement of labor laws and benefits could be easily monitored. The system could also respond to workers' goals and preferences, connecting them with opportunities and job training. In short, the platform's design could be engineered to promote the public interest, not to make venture capitalists money. This model is already being tried in a handful of cities around America, and it's generating strong interest from regional and national governments around the world. Job guarantees have enormous psychological and economic benefits. The 1946 Universal Declaration of Human Rights established the right to protection against unemployment. A recent analysis of data from 63 countries attributed one in five suicides to unemployment, which is also implicated in addiction, depression, and many other ailments. This doesn't mean that any job is always better than no job, but it does suggest that even with a universal basic income, many people would still want to work. In a fascinating job guarantee experiment currently being piloted in Austria, each of the 100-plus participants had the option to keep receiving relatively generous unemployment benefits. Yet all of them chose to join the job guarantee. I was psychologically destroyed, one man told me, recalling a long period of unemployment before he joined the study. Now, he and many other participants have experienced significant improvement to their mental health.
The program costs no more than what the state already spends on its unemployment programs. It also has other advantages. First, job guarantees mobilize a latent workforce to meet urgent local needs, from care work to the green transition. Second, job guarantees can have broad positive impacts on labor markets. With a better outside option, many people would abandon jobs that are dangerous, poorly paid, tedious, or unsatisfying. Would some low-quality employers struggle to attract workers if job guarantees were broadly implemented? Probably so. But for supporters of job guarantees, this is the point. City governments can bypass national political dysfunction, combating climate change, and strengthening democracy. In the book, I highlight two innovative models for city budgets. The first is called climate budgeting, and Oslo, the capital of Norway, is a global leader. Each year, every department in the city identifies specific policies and actions to reduce its emissions. These could be anything from using electric vehicles on big construction sites to phasing out meat and school lunches. Oslo's climate budget isn't just one line item among others. It's a way for cities to measure how much different policies can reduce emissions and to shape their decisions accordingly. Recent modeling for Oslo predicts a decline in greenhouse gas emissions of 72% by 2030. The second model is called participatory budgeting. It gives citizens direct democratic control over a significant proportion of their city's budget. Every year, tens of thousands of people in the Portuguese city of Cascais vote on projects proposed by fellow citizens. Winning projects receive millions of euros and are swiftly implemented. Many of these tackle essential infrastructure needs, improvements to schools, roads, buildings, green spaces, and athletic facilities are frequent winners. This model has implications far beyond Portugal. Even when federal spending is limited and national politics dysfunctional, participatory budgeting directly engages citizens in politics. From 2011 to 2021, almost half a million people in Cascais have allocated 45 million euros to 198 winning projects. Participatory democracy and collaborative democracy are great ways of avoiding extremism. Thank you, Nick. Some hopeful ideas there. Tomorrow, we'll keep the theme going by hearing some optimistic ideas from Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. I'm Michael Kavnat. See you tomorrow.